Okay, Peter, I'm here. Yep. All right. We are ready. Cool. Hello. We're back, and we're starting the session uh, on this week, uh, this month's Ontolog invited speaker presentation. Uh, we are honored to have Dr. Michael Ushold joining us, and he will be uh, talking about semantic filtering. Uh, Dr. Ushold is a research scientist at Boeing Phantom Works, the advanced research and development organization of the Boeing company. His interest centers around the field concerned with the development and application of ontologies. This includes the emerging semantic web, semantic integration, knowledge management, and more recently in the area of world modeling of autonomous vehicle navigation. Uh, for over two decades, Mike has been involved in a wide range of activities in these areas, including research, applications, and teaching. Uh, Dr. Ushold is on the industrial, industrial Advisory Board of various projects and initiatives related to the semantic web and other knowledge technologies. He is very active in organizing and participating in workshops and conferences on these topics. So uh, it is our pleasure. Uh, today is Thursday, April 21st, uh, 2005. This is the Ontolog Forum, and we take pleasure to have uh, Dr. Ashold here. So all yours, Mike. Thank you very much. What is the notional time frame that you like to live by? Uh, this is it's about uh, 10:45 Pacific time now. So. Please take about maybe 45 minutes to 60 minutes for your presentation, okay. and then we can do a discussion session of maybe another 30 minutes or so. That's just fine. Now, I'm very happy to have people, you know, interrupt during the middle of to have a question um, that relates specifically to what we're talking about, and we can take questions later, too. So don't feel hesitant to, to just uh, pipe in if you have a question. Okay, so thank you everyone for uh, having me here, and um, you should be seeing the, the title slide now. I just want to give credit to some of my colleagues who were also involved in this work, Deborah Folger, Scott Smith, Steve Utsukai, and Casey Fung. Next slide. Now, this is funny. Yeah. I don't have slide two now. Yeah, you know what? I'm just... Um, <laughs> wow. I should have slide numbers, and I don't, and I don't know why. Anyway, um, information filtering is good for you. Um, so really, this is a kind of an exploratory project. The original idea came from Peter Clark, whom some of you know, also here at Boeing. And we really were exploring the hypothesis of whether we can use semantic um, metadata and semantic uh, reasoning engines to do filtering and see whether there's some benefits to be had there. Um, we'll look at the implementation approach, what we actually did. Um, we focus, really, if you're going to do semantic filtering, the focus really needs initially to be on how you annotate the, the data that's going to be filtered on and what kind of interesting you're doing to do the filtering. We integrated the semantic filtering component with an existing infrastructure which did publish and subscribe, which is called the X-Infosphere. And we'll focus on how to use this technology. So what would one need to do if, if you wanted to um, try semantic filtering on your own 
your own domain. And so there's really a few steps here. One, you, of course, have to start by building your ontology. That will be the vocabulary for expressing the annotations and for creating the filters. Um, you need to figure out some way to get the semantic annotations there. Ideally, you don't want to have to do it manually. Um, automated methods are limited, so there's, there's certainly an issue there. And then you have to have some mechanism for um, having a user create the semantic filters and sending them off to some controller or engine that can then do the routing, etc. We'll show, now I would have shown an actual live demo, um, but we can't do that, so we're going to do kind of a little simulated demo. And we'll really open up a lot of kind of issues, questions, challenges that came up um, as a result of this work. Next slide. The filtering of information is good for you. So why do we care about filtering, and why would we want to do filtering better? Well, filtering is very, very important. It arises in many contexts all over the place, you know, the, the, the standard thing. We want to get the right information at the right time. We only want to get the relevant information, and we, of course, want to reduce the information overload. Other areas where filtering is important, security. If you want to control access, access to resources, you only want some people to get access, and you need to filter out those who are not allowed access. Um, in the context of publish, subscribe, that's what we're going to talk about today, mostly. Um, that was quite a, a really important and profound new way of, of doing filtering, changed the way people pass information. You no longer needed to know specific addresses, etc. so it made it possible to be much more scalable and distributable than previously. Next. There's a variety of filtering applications out there. Um, we'll name a few kind of in the pub sub arena, and there's a couple others. Um, so this project, and anyone, the person, I guess it was Dean, who was at the Iswick talk in Florida a couple of years ago, the domain I talked about there was Battlefield Spot Reports. And so in a publish-subscribe context, you imagine out in the battlefield, someone may be interested in, hey, I need to know about all the reconnaissance activity in a given region. Or I need to know about, you know, is there, um, where are troops moving from, you know, from A to B. So that's one example. Another example would be in kind of a, in a, in a manufacturing design context. If you're, many people are collaboratively designing something, um, that have, you know, important interactions between each other, then I need to know, you know, about the design changes that you're working on that impact on my piece. So I might subscribe to changes that you're doing. Now, that kind of thing does exist in product management systems, etc., um, in a pub-sub way. So the question would be, could we enhance that kind of existing technology with using semantic filtering? Another example that we'll really focus on today is in our examples what I call it networking. Um, you know, notify me if anybody from some division in Boeing is going to some event. So I frequently go to, you know, conferences and whatnot, and I'm always interested in knowing who from Boeing is there. There's just no way I can ask a question and say, you know, to some central server. We just don't track that information. Um, Michael? Yes? Forgive me for interrupting. Um, sure. You're, you're, we're getting a lot of air into your microphone. Ah, okay. Thank you for pointing that out. Okay. Is that a little bit better? I think so. Okay. Thanks. Right. Sorry about that. That's good. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, other examples are role-based access. So this is the idea of security for accessing resources. Is a person with a given set of characteristics, you know, allowed to access a certain resource? 
and those characteristics could change over time, so that's a more flexible approach. Um, also, web services, doing filtering to determine, you know, does this particular advertised service match my request for a service to do a certain kind of thing? Next. Okay, we're on slide number five now. Mike, forgive me, it's Kurt again, I'm going to jump in. Sure. We're, I think you're breathing into your microphone, we're getting a little more air now than we were before. Ah, okay, uh, let me just experiment with it. How's that? I think that should be fine. That's a little bit Try better, that. okay. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks. So now we have, just to kind of to give you a picture in your mind of what really is going on here, instead of this kind of abstract um, notion. Um, publish and subscribe works basically like this. You have any number of people out there, um, triangle head, circle head, and star head, who have their own editors um, for creating subscriptions, and they, they out, those subscriptions get exported and then uploaded into some registrar that keeps track of everything, the subscription registrar. Now we have a database of subscriptions. Next. Okay. So now you see a, a little document there that's getting published, and it goes off to the pub sub broker and to the controller. Next. Yes. And now you see that the controller is sending this particular document off to the filtering engine, and then the subscriptions come down, and then the question is asked, you know, who of all the subscribers, you know, is interested in this particular document? And then in this case, the filtering engine comes back and says, ah, in this case, we need to send it to Trianglehead and Starhead, and that goes to the router. So click the next slide. And then the router sends it off to the to the next um, to Starhead and Trianglehead. Um, now, at some point, you should see a slide that shows the red document sitting by Triangle and Starhead. Do you see that? Yep. Okay. So next, and now we'll see a little animation where just different documents get loaded up to different people. Next. So this is Dwayne uh, Nicole. Which slide are you on right now? Why semantic filtering? Right. Slide number eleven with a question mark in the center. So this is really the, the the driving force of this project. We we already had an existing infrastructure; it worked just fine. Um, so why would we want to try semantic filtering? Next. Slide. Well, one question is the standard. You know overload, information overload problem that we all experience every day with Google searches. So if you do a Google search on three words here, semantic, publish, and subscribe, you get you know, almost 30,000 hits. Um, so this is a problem. We still get lots of next slide. Slide 13. Why semantic filtering? Um, still too much irrelevant information, okay? And so what we want to do is have the filtering language based on semantic concepts rather than just keywords and syntax. Um, the idea is to have greater selectivity and finer control over what you're asking for. And very importantly, to not require knowledge of document structure. Now, that's exactly what was required for the existing pub sub mechanism that we had implemented here based on XML. So you use XPath. Um, and XML documents, then in order to ask for something, you need to know exactly what the structure of the document is to ask it, and then XPath can do the filtering for you. Now, another point that shows the value of semantics 
and kind of filtering applications. Um, Chris Welty has done some excellent work within the last year or two. gave a talk at AAAI last year, I believe, showing, you know, actually doing a rare case of doing an evaluation um, with actual metrics showing, you know, the improvement of using an ontology versus not using an ontology. Next slide. Slide 14. Yeah. Now, for this audience, I probably don't have to spend too much time on this um, because you're pretty much all in the same game. Um, but I'll just kind of review it for, for uh, completeness sake. So semantics-based approach, okay, everybody's talking about semantics and ontologies. And what actually do they mean by that? Well, there's lots of different things that people mean. So I'm just going to say what I mean. Um, and basically, we're talking about a situation where we have ontologies, which are conceptual models of the domain, ontology languages that have a formal semantics and that we're doing some kind of automated inferencing. So there's a semantic continuum that um, I've kind of thought about. And it really addresses this question of you know, why semantics and what are the advantages that you can have by using semantics in different ways. So typically, um, semantics are implicit. So they're just sitting inside people's heads. And of course, you can make wrong assumptions. And people use language in different ways, et cetera. Um, and informal semantics is a question of, say, writing down a definition like in a, in a glossary or something. So here we have a definition of a pump, a device for moving a liquid or gas from one place to another, um, from one container to another. Um, we also have formal semantics where, say, an example of um, Z or Z um, formal specifications, you write down exactly what computer program supposed to do. Um, and a lot of the time, that formal specification is really for the human beings to, to know what to do, how to build their code. Or in the case of formal semantics for RDF, axiomatic semantics. Um, well, for the most part, these aren't intended to be used by computers, but they're really just the, the, the core you know, agreed requirement that humans can all say, OK, this is not ambiguous. This is exactly what we mean. And finally, you may indeed have formal descriptions um, where they're actually intended to be processed by machines. So what are the advantages of moving from the left to the right along this continuum? Well, further to the right, next, hit the next slide, or the next button there. Right. So nice to see right. three, bullets, three bullets on the left. Yep. We should still be on the same slide, a semantic continuum. Okay. Um, so further to the right means we have less ambiguity. So the, the, the more formal you get, the more explicit you get, uh, the less chance there is for ambiguity. And if you have less ambiguity, the chances are better that you're going to have correct functionality. There was a good example of this in the RDF um, semantics. It was written down informally, and two different groups built applications, and they made different assumptions um, about the, the meaning of something. And that, that was settled when um, Pat Hayes and whoever else came along to write a formal semantics. Now everybody actually could agree on what to do. So now you're going to get the correct functionality. And of course, if everybody's working from the same unambiguous specification, it's much more possible for systems to interoperate. Everyone wants their RDF triple stores to behave in the same way, just like everyone wants the SQL you know, databases to respond in the same ways. You don't want subtly different semantics of an SQL query to give different behavior from different vendors, just because you haven't settled on an agreed semantics for what you're doing. Next. 
slide 15. Right. So now we have other advantages. Moving to a more formal and explicit semantics means you have to do less hardwiring. Um, so that gives more flexibility and makes it more robust to change. So these are all the benefits. But the trick, of course, is that it's more difficult to do that. So it's a lot of work, and there are some trade-offs. Next. Slide 16 now. OK, so simple example of you know semantics that are really designed for machine processing. Um, so you have a, a document here on the left. And there's a task that a, that a computer agent is given to find documents about mechanical devices. So in this particular case, there's a um, hit the next button. Yep. So the agent sees in this document uh, the phrase fuel pump, but it doesn't know. It has some kind of ontology. It has access to other public ontologies. But it doesn't know what a fuel pump is. None of its ontologies have fuel pump in it. Next. However, if we do a semantic annotation, which is to say we formally specify in a, in a formal ontology language the meaning of the word fuel pump. And here's a simple example. I should code this in OWL, but for the moment it's, it's a different formalism. So here basically it just says fuel pump is a special kind of pump. So now we define the meaning of fuel pump in a way that we can do reasoning over it. Next. Now we should see that this pump is itself defined in a shared hydraulics repository, which would be, say, a public ontology. And again, this should be an old, but these are old slides. Um, so this basically says pump is a kind of mechanical device. And it says other things about pumps. That there's physical parts, and it has a particular purpose, et cetera. So this would be a shared hydraulics repository. So now, by inference, this agent that didn't know anything about fuel pump, because it's semantically annotated, in respect of a publicly shared hydraulics repository, or ontology, say, then if you click the next button there, this gives information about fuel pumps, and now the agent can actually return that document as being relevant to the request. This is an example of how you know, formal machine semantics can, can be helpful. So that's kind of a, a broad introduction to what we're doing and why, what the context is, and what some of the hoped for advantages are going to be by using a semantic approach. The next slide is kind of an outline one that says we're going to talk about the implementation approach. Next slide after that is the first bullet. These are going to come up one by one, these bullets. So the first bullet is that for this, there's three or four main steps. The first thing we have to do is we need to augment the publishing step so that every time a document gets published, we need to somehow create some semantic annotations that are going to be used to mark up that document. Next bullet. Secondly, we have to add a new filtering mechanism. Okay, So rather than using XPath, we're going to use an inference engine. In this case, we used FACT. And then eventually, we moved over to Network Inferences uh, Cerebra Server uh, tool. Um, we also pulled off. Uh, kind of as an architectural thing, we had a separate server to do the filtering. It wasn't a native procedure call to do the code, um, which, for instance, from Java, you would just call an XPath you know, filtering uh, function. But in this case, we, we had a, the way the Cerebra server and the way FACT works, it's a separate server that you call out to it and get the information back. You have to upload the ontology into the filtering server. And also, and importantly, we didn't want to replace 
the XML filtering mechanism because people who are using it and familiar with it and are happy to um, use XPath filters and who know the structure of these documents, that's fine. You know, we don't want to take that away from them. We just want to provide an alternate mechanism. So we added a different filtering mechanism. And if you do that, then you have to have some mechanism for deciding which filtering approach to use. Next bullet. So finally, we took that new approach and we integrated with the new component into the existing Xinfosphere um, computing infrastructure. Next slide. Slide 20. So I'm going to, now in the ISWIC talk, we talked about um, battlefield reports. And because of the pain of getting external papers released, and every time you mention anything to do with the military, it takes two months to get it to the government, <laughs> I decided to change this around so I didn't have to worry about that. So we're going to talk about activity reports. But the structure of what we're doing is pretty much identical. So here's an example of a report that comes in. Um, now, we do this kind of thing at, in our group just so people can keep track of what we're doing and report up to their management, how, all the wonderful things we do. So here's just an example of something that might get into an activity report. You know, Sam is going to AAAI in August 2005. He published a paper there called Machine Learning in the Semantic Web. Sarah was a co-author, and oh, by the way, AAAI is in Pittsburgh this year. So this is kind of an informal um, report. So then you need to create a semantic annotation for that, and you need to represent that annotation in a formal language, because that's going to be the thing that the inference engine gets, and it has to do uh, some, some reasoning on. Next. Field 21. Right. So now what we see is that we have the original document kind of appended um, notionally to the semantic annotation. So we view this as kind of a new thing, and we publish the semantic annotation alongside the original one instead of just publishing the document. So we basically changed the publish step by adding the semantic annotation in the process. Next. Next slide. 22. OK, so here we see a, a slight variation on the, um, the architecture. We split off the filtering engine here. We create the ontology using, you know, your ontology editor of choice, whether it's Oil Ed, Protege, Construct, or Emacs. Um, and you upload the ontology into the filtering server, which in this case is Cerebus Server. And then you, the semantic annotations get published, not as individuals, but they're being published as these pairs, where there's the original document and then the semantic annotation. So they are the things that get published into the controller. Um, so hit the next button. Yep. Now, do you, what do you see? Uh, I have two arrows sort of between the controller and the filtering server. OK, great. That's perfect. Um, so now the controller sends off the request to the filtering server to say, hey, who of all the people who have subscribed you know, are supposed to get this document? And that information goes to the router, et cetera. Um, click the next one. Now we see a little um, bubble, little caption. <laughs> bubble, yeah, I was looking for the word. Thank you. So this particular server allows you to upload. We have a new person. Who's that? Yeah, it's Chris. Chris Menzel. Ah, oh, hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. OK, so now we have a filtering server. And we are just going to demonstrate with a single ontology. Um, but one of the things we'd like to do is have multiple ontologies that may use different vocabulary and then have the ability to, to match between them. So you could ask 
multiple streams of documents could be getting published, each according to different ontology, and you'd like to be able to subscribe, you know, make one subscription using one vocabulary and not have to, you know, do things separately. Next slide. We'll be on 20, 23 now, slide 23. So we're really trying to answer the question, does the semantic annotation for a given document, you know, does that annotation denote a member of the class of documents denoted by the filter? So basically a filter denotes a class of documents. A filter that says, I'm interested in who went to AAAI, is this, you know, the set of all documents that refer to somebody going to AAAI. Um, so activity report one, you ask the question, is it a member of the class of all documents denoted by the filter going to AAAI 05? So this is a classification problem, and the insight here which led us to using a DL, and that's the insight which led us to using a DL classifier. A lot of people complain about OWL and what does it do if it can't have a rule, it's very limited, blah, blah, blah. But here's an example of where it's doing exactly what you want, it's classifying. Next. 24. So now we're going to talk about how to use this, this technology, and we'll go through a variety of steps and illustrate it with the example about activity reports. Next. 25. So there's three basic steps, and we'll go through each of these with examples. Um, you create the ontology. You augment the publishing step with the semantic annotations, as we saw in the little animation a moment ago. And then we, we have to do the semantic filtering, which has two steps, creating the filters and also performing the filtering using the inference. Next. Slide 26. So here's that example of the activity report again. Next. So what's being reported on here? Two things. First, a person is attending an event at some particular place, and also that same person authored a publication that has a co-author. Now, in general, a, a report could report on lots of different things. Next. 28. So this step is creating ontologies. How do you create an ontology? Well, this is this kind of audience. We don't need to talk too much about that. But you basically, you look at the, the collection of all kinds of reports that you might have, and then you analyze the domain, and then you identify the concepts. And now you create your ontology. And we all should be doing this in all of Next. 29. So what are the kinds of information? So we're talking about the ontology for this domain, and what are the kind of things we have? Well, the kind of events we have is attending conferences, publishing papers, you know, customer contacts, you know, participating on a panel at some conference, etc. And we would kind of have a template for each. Now, a given report would have one or more of each of these templates. So the report that we're talking about had two templates. One is the event attending a conference, and the other is the event publishing a paper. Now, there's a variety of attributes that you have for each of these, um, each of these kinds of templates. So the next slide. Slide 30. So all templates, because this is an activity reporting you know, mechanism, everyone has to refer at least to one employee who's, who's reporting on their activities. So we have a site. We have an identifier. Uh, a, you know, who your manager is, etc. For publishing a paper, the attributes would be, you know, the publication itself, author's title, publisher, subject, etc. Customer. Who have we got? 
Uh, Nicholas Rukan. Hello, welcome. Nice to Mike. Okay, so customer contact um, template, you would have things like the person initiating the contact, the person contacted, maybe some kind of status report, what went on during that um, interaction, what the date was, etc. This is kind of like customer relations management type stuff. Um, or if you participated on a panel, you'd have to have who's the participant, what's the hosting event, etc. Next. Slide 31. So now comes the hard part. How do we augment these, the publishing step so that each document that gets published is semantically annotated? Next. 32. So we need to somehow get this semantic annotation. So how do we do that? Now, in, although this example, I'm talking about activity reports, it's kind of isomorphic to the domain that we actually implemented, and that was in battlefield reporting. Um, now, about six, eight, ten years ago, a group of folk here at Boeing took a bunch of battlefield reports. They built the ontology by analyzing the domain. They did a lot of natural language processing. They figured out all the different buzzwords and acronyms and yada, 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 you know, resolved a whole bunch of ambiguities, and they came up with a summary of what was being reported on in that particular battlefield report. So in this context, what if we applied that RTIMS was the name of the system, and if we applied that here, well, the output of that system would be information in this type here. So there's a type of template which is to attend a conference, the name of the conference, you know, the place of where it's happening, the person attending, etc. Now of course this is informal and not suitable for an inference engine. So somehow we need to encode this in a formal way. Now in fact were we to be doing this today, developing this code, we would simply have that code output the formal information directly. In this case, because someone else had written the code 10 years ago and we were using the output, we didn't have a chance to change the code around. Um, so instead, we kind of did it manually. Move to the next slide. I've anticipated, yeah, I've talked a little bit about this already. Um, so this is a project from like about 10, 12 years ago. Um, and we used this set of data to, to test our techniques. Um, so much of this I've already said. Um, so how would we get this fully automated? You know, this of course is a, is a big challenge in the um, in, in the research domain for the semantic web. Next, thirty-four. So now we see what the actual informal annotation is that we started with, um, and we see the um, the things that are in red and blue are just kind of the focus things that we'll we'll show examples of. Um, so how do we convert this into a formal annotation? Next slide. Slide 35. So RTIMS has produced this annotation informally. And what we did, actually, is we just sat down and manually um, entered the information as data in oil ed. And we would do that now in Protege. And then we export and translate that information into the syntax required by the inference engine. Now we found, and I guess this problem is probably going away bit by bit, but we found that um, things didn't just work. You couldn't export all from OilEd and then import it into the server, or vice versa, because there was little massaging you had to do, little things 
know that Afton Gomez Perez in, in Madrid there, they have found all kinds of problems with that kind of thing, you know, a couple years ago. And I'm hoping that those problems are going away. But last time I checked, there were still some issues. Is, is that true also of owl ontologies generated in Protege? Well, we tried to we tried to upload things into Protege too. Yeah, we we had yeah exactly. We we did it didn't work. Now it may work now. I don't know. But that's something to to not just blithely assume. <laughs> have you looked at the uh, Sparkle? Sparkle, I have not. Because also similar issues with XMI and tool support. Ah, right. Well, this is not a new problem, and I don't know why these problems tend to keep popping up. It must be a little subtle. It's the terseness of the parsing. I mean, things like white space, other non-visible characters, uh, uh, uh. you know, create problems. And it's also assumptions about things that aren't in the language about how to handle namespaces. So I think yeah, there's actually a great technology. It's not public. It's commercial for doing these kinds of um, what we call string smashers, semantic smashers, text uh -huh. smashers. It's um, a system called uh, a design maintenance system by a company called Semantic Designs, www.semdesigns.com. www.semdesigns. The W3C also uh, worked with something called XML InfoSet, which is to deal with a more canonical format of the, uh, the syntax. What's the, that product called? Well, it's, it's a standard XML InfoSet. No, I meant the one by Semantic Design. Oh, DMS, the DMS Toolkit. DMS Toolkit. And, and um, you can do things, I mean, you can process XML-like languages or non-XML-like languages with whatever level of um, syntactic, grammatical, or semantic, or uh, name resolution, you know, kind of right. um, enhancements you, you wish okay. to, to include. Thank you. I may look into that. Um, okay, next slide. Slide 35. So here's what you actually get after you encode this. Now this, I say almost here, because this isn't literally what you got. When you exported um, the oil ed stuff that I entered, I got something slightly different in Owl. And then I had to fiddle around with it a little bit to size it to be the format that um, Network Inference wanted as its query. So they use xQuery um, for their format. So basically what we have here is I'll just kind of go through with this because this is a bit more technical audience. Um, so this annotation says that we have, uh, this is a document which is an intersection of two things. So th it's both something, so it has two basic classes of things. Now this document refers to an attend event and it also has a published paper. And oh and by the way, the attend event is, is the intersection of four other things, which is where an, an event is AI, AI05, and the location is Pittsburgh, and the subject is AI, and the attendee is Sam. Um, so that's how we model this. And similarly, the published paper, it's, we're using the restriction um, feature in all. Next. Slide 36. So we've talked about how to build the ontology. We've talked about how to augment the publishing with semantic annotations. Now we're going to look at how we actually do the filtering, which has two pieces, creating the filters themselves and then do, performing the filtering to see who should be getting what. Next. So here's some example filters of the sort that you might um, imagine people be interested in. So a person says, oh, I'm interested in knowing about any paper or talk that's submitted for external release by someone who reports to manager Mandy. Or 
somebody might be interested in subscribing to any, you know, activity reports where there's some mention of papers published by either Wes, Sergio, or Leonard, where the topic is both web services and learning that's co-authored by someone from Stanford University. Okay? Um, or we might want to say, and this is the sort of thing I like to know, but I can't ever get this information, is who at Boeing is going to AAAI 05? Finally, the last bullet, um, I might want to know about all new customer contacts with people in California, because I might be going down there, and I want to see who's talking to who if I'm, say, a manager, just to touch, touch base on things. Next. Like this slide. Yeah. So how do we represent filters? What is a filter actually, and we think of it formally? Well, the filter really is, it, it, it denotes or, or represents a class of activity reports. So if we think back what we just said, I'm interested in the class of all activity reports that talk about, you know, people going to AAAI 05. Okay, so it's really a class. Um, so we represent that class in the ontology language. And of course, we can use the arbitrary Boolean combinations um, and the, the filters themselves, formally, they look exactly like the annotations, actually, um, except that they're classes rather than instances. And we use the description logic classifier to, to determine which activity reports get routed to which subscribers. So it's a simple class, subclass um, relationship. You just say, who are all the you know, subclasses of, of X? And of course, we get the hierarchical reasoning. So here's the benefit you get with semantic filtering. You know, if the paper's about machine learning, you know, then you can infer that it's about AI because machine learning is a special kind of AI. Or if the customer is located in LA, then you can infer that they're in, say, Southern California. That's where you're going. So this is a, one of the benefits of the semantic filtering using taxonomic reasoning. However, that assumes that your ontology has uh, encoded um, the relationships, the hierarchical relationships like LA is part of California or machine learning is a subject matter, you know, within AI or something like that. That's exactly right. In a way that coincides with the kind of relevance relationships you want to query in for filtering purposes. That's correct. If I had said I want to find all of the people in LA who um, have dyed their hair green, right? You know, I may not have you know dyed the hair green as a kind of reified uh, hierarchical relationship amongst all human beings. You might not, but you might have someone else might be interested in people who have wacky haircuts, and then that would dyed green would be a subset of that. If I had said green is a wacky haircut exactly. style, but that may not be my prejudice, right? So the problem <laughs> is still um, a question of uh, you're still dependent on having um, constructed the ontology in a way that is friendly for filtering purposes. There's a bias there that I'm not sure how to describe. This is Dwayne. I, I think that you know some of these could be gotten around with the use of queryable ontologies. Um, Looking at the old Blackboard AI pattern, the idea of a knowledge source that is uh, present, whether it's in your, you know, hard coded in some piece of code, or 
whether you can actually uh, dynamically get it just in time, uh, the concept's pretty similar. Um, having something like the upper-level ontology, like Sumo, to guide you to the other ontologies and a queryable interface where you can say, you know, I have this, what else is this related to, and then find the other things that it's related to conceptually, and then tie that back down into the instances and figure out how to go about locating the knowledge you need in a kind of JIT manner, just-in-time manner. Well, um, Mike, I also have a question about this. You, you, you mentioned that you can use a DL classifier for this, and, and this is actually an, an example where I'm, I'm curious. Um, you may have a, a transitive relation in your DL logic about uh, if X is part of Y yeah. and Y is part of Z, then X is part of Z. Sorry. But if you then subsequently also have uh, Mr. Q is located in X, um, you can easily write a first-order statement saying if if, uh, if if Q is in X and X is part of Z, then Q is in Z. Right. But can you do that in a DL logic? You might not. I, would, I don't know enough about DL logics. Chris Menzel, if he's there, he might he might know. I, I mean, I, I I I haven't looked into this, but but it's just just off the top of my head, I'm just wondering if you can do that easily. Well, so that's a good question, and and the broader issue that that question brings up is the limitations of DL classifiers. And if it turns out that you, in your particular filtering application, absolutely have to have those kinds of tools, then, and if all doesn't cut it for you, then you either need to go to Alful or you get something like Ontoprise's um, Ontobroker, because they have richer rules that do, do more things for you. So, or you, or you build your own. The principle of representing things in a formal way with ontology and having a reasoning engine would be um, addressed and implemented in the same way. Thank you. You're welcome. Next. Slide 41. I think it should be the same. Yeah, it is the next slide. Okay. So now we've just got another kind of a little uh, where we are type of slide. So we're getting to the to the end of the talk. Um, and we're going to just do a quick little simulated demo on the different area, just to kind of show you what this looks like when we when we um, experiment with it, just to make sure things are working. Next, is this demo on the VNC channel or on your slides? It's on the slides. Oh, okay. But the slides should be on the VNC channel. It is. It is. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about a variety of, of applications earlier. I should have grayed out all the ones, except for the one in red here. So we're going to talk about this one, role-based access. You know, is a person with a given set of characteristics allowed to access a certain resource? So I just spent, you, know, you can do these simple little demos in a really short space of time, like just a few hours in the afternoon or a day after messing around a bit. So here's what we do. Role-based access is the, is the example. And so we create the ontology, and again, I just did the simplest possible thing that's not terribly realistic, um, but it kind of conveys the idea that you could use this kind of technology for a variety of purposes. So I just invented um, document, a little document hierarchy where there's documents, there's secret documents, and there's super secret documents. So you could use the official terminology classified or whatnot, but I'm just making up my own terms. Um, we have persons, secret persons, and super secret persons. And of course, the super secret person is just someone who is authorized to see super secret documents and, and similar. 
for secret person, etc. And we also, I just introduced one level of indirection just to kind of show how it's not, you know, you can, you can have any number of levels of indirection. So I have created clearance levels, C1 and C2, and also job descriptions, uh, managers, and VIPs. Um, now there's some relationships in the simple ontology. People have job descriptions, um, and documents are assigned clearance levels. And we have a couple of rules. Now, these are the rules that do the classifying, OK? Um, so managers have the right to see secret documents, and VIPs have the right to see super secret documents. So what's going to happen is, because the manager has the right to see super secret documents, they're going to be classified as, as uh, secret persons, OK? And we'll see how that works. Um, documents with clearance levels C1 are classified as secret documents, and documents with clearance level C2 are classified as super secret documents. So why do I have this here? I said it's a level of indirection. Well, basically, this is to allow to show how you might have, um, you know, 179 different rules or guidelines or characteristics that are used to determine whether something is is classified as secret or super secret. So this is just one trivial rule, but this kind of is a placeholder for a very complex system for determining whether something, you know, how something is classified. And I expect that in real life there are such uh, rules. Next. So a simple little test. We create some instances. So there's going to be a person, per three persons, Jack, Tom the manager, and Joe the VIP. And I've just encoded the meaning of what's going on in all the names here, just for convenience. There's two documents. There's a report that's a level C1 document, and there's financials that's a level C2 document. And so the question is going to be, can Tom see the document financials level C2? So this is a question that a security um, you know, gateway would have to answer if Tom is trying to access this document. It needs to go off and ask some filtering engine, hey, you know, does this person with his roles, et cetera, allowed to see this document? Um, so the goal for the filtering, you know, for each person, each document, you want to know whether a person's allowed access to the given document. And so we, we code this all up in a DL. I did this simple little example in oil ed. All the persons and documents are classified as secret or super secret. Tom gets classified as a secret person, and the document financial level C2 gets classified as a super secret document. And the question is, is Tom a member of super secret persons? If he's not, then he can't see super secret documents. And if he is, he can. Next. So I'm just going to simulate this. I'm just going to simulate this using the OilEd ontology editing tool, which is connected up to the, to the inference engine. So here we have the ontology, which, now if anyone knows OilEd, you might be saying, hey, well, this is interesting. How come he's got his instances as classes? Well, that was just a fudge, because OilEd kind of choked <laughs> if I made them actual instances. Um, so it's just kind of a little a little semantic hack, you could call it, for convenience. Now, Ian Horrocks assures me that it's really not a hack at all, because underneath it, that's how it would be done. So um, allow me this little indiscretion, if you view it that way. OK, so documents, two document individuals, uh, the financial 
level C2 and the report level C1. And then there's three individuals, um, Joe and Tom the manager, Joe the VIP and Tom the manager. For some reason, it's not printing out the full names. Um, and then we have the document structure, document, secret document, super secret document, which I created manually and said each of these are sub, you know, the, the, I created this manual little substructure where I explicitly described the subclasses. And I explicitly described the subclasses of person, secret person, and super secret person. So the individual persons and documents are not classified yet. So basically, by saying Joe, you know, is has um, job type manager or VIP, and Tom has job type whatever, then I press the button on oil ed that says classify, and now it's going to actually do all that reasoning for me and classify everything. And so the next slide shows the results of this. So if we look at the top bubble, we see that the clearance levels, C1 and C2, you know, affect how the documents get classified. So C1, documents with C1 are classified as secret documents, and documents with C2 are classified as super secret documents. Now, I'm sure you're not following all the details of this, but if, you know, it's a relatively straightforward example once you kind of sit down and go through the details. It's like following long division. You're not going to follow every step, but if you sat down, you could kind of work it out. Um, okay, so similarly, the job description affects whether a person, you know, is a manager or a VIP. So this is basically how it works. So if Tom can, you know, so now we can answer the question of whether a given person can see the given document by doing this classification. Next. Okay, so issues and challenges. And this is really going to be opening up. I mostly have summary and concluding slides from here on in, so we can kind of continue uh, in the spirit of discussion as we proceed here. So DL limitations. Now, I think it was Pat who asked, you know, can you do, you know, have this little rule that, that connects part of with subkind and whatnot. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things that you can't do with a description logic. So one of them that we discovered straight away was what they call concrete domains. Now, in ordinary everyday speak, that's like, you know, numbers, letters, string manipulation. You want to do, you want to do stuff where perform functions and arithmetic and whatnot. You want to be able to conclude, do inference about, you know, is a region contained as a subregion. Um, and you can't do any of that in a DL. Fortunately, there's, um, everybody knows this, and there's a, a big move afoot now in a workshop happening uh, next week on rules for the semantic web. So there's lots of different rules out there, and they're talking about how to extend all with rule languages, and they want the different rules to be interoperable with each other, et cetera. So a lot of this is going to be addressed, you know, in the coming, you know, years when we get this going. If you need rules right away, then you can use things like Enterprise's Toolkit, or you can use XSB, which I guess you can probably get for free, or you can use Ontology Works. Um, they have a product which enables you to do this kind of thing. Um, another important limitation, a really important limitation, is you can't use variables to enforce co-reference. So in the battlefield example, you want to ask a question. I want to know when, you know, there's two people moving to the same place within an hour of each other. But I don't know which place it is. I just want to have a general rule that says, 
you know, if there exists a P such that, you know, there's two people, Tom and Jerry, that are both going to that same location, I can't ask that question. I can't specify that as a filter because I can't have variables used in that way. Well, that's a huge limitation, um, which a DL doesn't allow you to, to do. Um, I think um, there it, it might say that you have um, that the expressiveness of DL allows you to pick a constraint expressed with one variable. But when you need to uh, formulate a constraint that includes more than one, then you're beyond what you can express in DL. Who's talking? Nicholas. Nicholas, OK. You probably know a lot more about the details of DLs than I do. Um, and you could be right, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'm just getting my information from Ian. I'm getting my information from the uh, handbook on description logic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what I'm pretty certain of is that we're both right, and we're there's an apparent contradiction here. But if we I don't know if it's there are there are it's not just one thing which is DLs either. I mean there are there's a there's a whole cluster of uh, of DLs. Uh, whether you're just talking about LDL, then I'm not sure. But uh, there there are. There are DLs that permit sort of limited reasoning with, with two variables. So uh, do you know, Nicholas, do you know whether all itself would allow me to, to express in a rule, you know, tell me when I, I want to I define a class, a class of all um, things such that Peter loves, you know, person X and John loves person X but I don't know who person X is. Yeah, I've, um, I, I've asked myself the same, a similar kind of question uh, for kind of related to your semantic bingo next bullet. Um, um, but I'm, I, I believe the answer is that um, this is beyond what DL can say. Right. And, and what practically I've looked to is um, Sparkle because you can um, represent in Sparkle, um, you know, the, the notion of a, of a, of a semantic pattern um, where you have, you need more than one variable to instantiate the pattern because, you know, you, you, the pattern might bind into several places, kind of like a molecule or a, uh, you know, or a blueprint. Because in, in, in Sparkle, uh, you know, the, the, the query language is itself, you know, describing a, a graph pattern. Right. And so in that context, um, the kind of queries you talk about, um, who give me all x such that uh, Peter loves x and Mary loves x, then you can say that in Sparkle easily. I don't want all x such that Peter loves x. Or, or so you could find, no, does it, is there exist an x? Or you could say, you know, if there exists an x, you know, or is there one or is there more or, right. you know, whatever. Oh, but interesting. So Sparkle but does allow some of that. Um, but the, the benefit, though, is that um, you can still use, uh, you know, OWL to you know, describe uh -huh. what Peter is and X is and, you know, Mary. Well, I'd like to know a bit more about that. Is there, um, who would who would be able to give me a nice two or three paragraph explanation in technical terms that I could better understand that? Is it really? Think, think, of, think of querying like SQL query, but a uh -huh. query is describing a pattern um, of a graph where, you know, you know, if you think about OWL where you have all of the concepts that are nodes on the graph and the relationships are the edges in your graph. So you're, you're, you can, you know, diff construct a query over 
a pattern of concepts and relationships among those concepts or instances of those concepts that are that have uh, specific relationships to those to to other instances huh. but it doesn't care whether you you're you're binding to instances as nodes in the graph or concepts as right. nodes in the graph that's right. uh, because the distinction is itself uh, represented in owl by the fact that a concept says well i'm a kind of uh, our class versus instances I'm a kind of something else that is a kind of an our class. Right. I, I had a question to this part. Um, since you apparently have had some experience with both ontology works and onto broker, um, I'm curious is, uh, would you is, is there something you don't like about those except perhaps the price uh, <laughs> that that would make you prefer to use the owl DL the, the DL reasoners? Or? Oh well you know, I haven't really explored that in great detail. Um, and I'd rather make comments of that nature offline. Okay, sure. Um, so not to offend anybody. So, Mike? Yes. This is Dean. Uh-huh. Um, the issue about uh, friendly fire and things like that. Oh, yeah, we didn't get to that one, but we can talk about that now if you want well, to. Well, in some sense, we were just talking about it. Um, Partly, with, with, yeah. with the DL, and you know, can you represent this in DL? Um, I've used that example as well as one that's come up in some of our trainings um, to talk at great length with Ian Horrocks <laughs> about that. But you have been talking at great length. I, I have. I, I, about, a, about half a year ago or so, I had okay. quite a long discussion with him. Uh -huh. And uh, he saw a handful of solutions. One was really um, sort of foreshadowing the, uh, the Sparkle template-based one that Nicholas was just talking about, which with the technology as it was at the time we had the discussion, uh, really seemed quite impractical because he was leaving the standards at that point. Oh, but now that Sparkle is coming into you know, standards and such, that might make a little bit more sense. Oh, but, but, okay. but in another direction, um, is it turns out that in you know, DL, for the DL folks, there's actually a very simple way to do an awful lot of this stuff. Oh, yeah? And it has to do with a single operator on properties where you are allowed to compose two properties and, and get a new property. Oh, right. And it turns out that the general class of those things, and I forget now what it's called, but I have a paper by Ian that uh, he published fairly recently oh, yeah. in which he, is, uh, he examines the computational complexity of this class of operators. It turns out if you let them in willy-nilly, you break all the cool guarantees you have by oh. being an LDL in the first place. However, he's worked out a non-willy-nilly-willy, willy-nilly way to let them in oh. that preserves all those things. And in fact, it's my understanding when I talked to Bijan Parsia about the same issue, that this is one of the topics that's a candidate for a workshop coming up at Iswick in Galway next year. Oh. Um, the workshop is called something like uh, Requirements for OWL version 2.0. Oh. And so um, Bijan, when I expressed my interest in this topic, because I think this is actually extremely important for the uh, any semantic web application, you have to use one of the solutions to this. Uh -huh. So either you put it into OWL2 uh, in the way that Ian has talked about, or you put it into Sparkle, and you, you need to get a best practices opinion about which way is better. Um, but uh, the, I guess there's this workshop that Bijan is running um, in which he's looking for topics, and I told him that, to my mind, this is an extremely important topic for a workshop that's going to discuss oh, the requirements of OWL2L. Right. So I've already put my plug into that. <laughs> um, if, if you happen to find yourself chatting with Bijan at some point... Uh, I will actually see I, I presume you know Bijan. Yes. 
Now, if you're, if you're talking to him, ask him about that. Mm. Uh, express your interest in that. He'll probably invite you to be on the program committee. Did the workshop get accepted? Because all the accepted. No, it didn't. Oh, it did not. It oh, did. well, in that case, never mind what I'm saying. I guess it's something else. No, I, actually, what you should. Uh, this is Evan. Yeah, this is Evan. What you should be asking is, where can we host such a workshop? Because well, I think it's really important. Well, I'm, I'm quite disappointed that it wasn't accepted. So I am I. A, a really good idea for a workshop. Indeed. <clears throat> um, but maybe it was not stated in a way that actually connected the issue that, Dean, you're talking about, which from what I, my reading of the handbook sounds like you're talking about um, a logic that, it, that includes uh, role value maps or role restrictions, which indeed yeah. um, lead to some computation, computational right. complexity explosion in this side a bit of the logic. That's right. But the, the the context where where this came up here is, um, you know, where is the practical relevance of this type of exotic um, operator constructs, you know, for day-to-day -day, um, yeah, well activities? Yeah, right, right here on this do. slide. I'll and tell you where it is. It's right here on Mike's slide. It's right, obviously. Um, but but sometimes um, in, um, in in some workshops, it's either you know too practical, and then um, there's a it, it, it's. You know, sounds good, but doesn't taste great because um, there's not enough um, rigor, you know, to really uh, properly understand, um, you know, the range of uh, you know technology applications or capabilities that are available, mm -hmm. or it's too technical, and then uh, you know it's uh, you know the you know, the theoreticians that take over, and then uh, we get lost into um, their um, their world. So what you're saying is that the uh, folks who wrote the workshop proposal didn't manage to walk that line. I don't know. I've not seen the workshop proposal. Okay. I cannot no, say about that on, about that pr work proposal, but um, I've seen a lot where it, it kind of flip-flops on, you know. Well, I think, then I think we have to get back to Peter's question is, okay, since that workshop's not happening at ISWIC, um, how can we make it happen somewhere? But that's probably not a discussion for today's talk. But that's <laughs> but I think it's a good question that, that, that the folks on this call should think What about. is this, the workshop that you're talking about? Well, it's the, the proposal. Yeah, it was a proposal for a workshop at the International Semantic Web Conference. Okay. For extensions to OWL. For, for yeah, extensions to OWL that would be incorporated into OWL2L. Oh, okay. I, I'm, I'm now very confused, Nicholas. I thought you were just telling me that you knew that the workshop had been refused, and now you're asking me... No, I'm not. That was, okay. It was Evan. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I'm getting the voice. Evan I'm sorry. That's, 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 <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Over a, a party line like this, sometimes the voices sound <laughs> very similar. Sorry about that. It's okay. Any other comments, questions on this, these themes? Okay. So let me go to the next bullet because while it's correctly pointed out that these are very similar to the last two bullets, there is an important difference. So we're semantic, still on slide 50. Yeah, we're still on the same slide. Semantic bingo is the third bullet. So what, what this is about is you have um, a subscription that you say, well here the friendly fire example was the one that inspired this. So there's a, there's a possibility of friendly fire happening if we kind of have, say, say a battlefield report comes in that says, you know, um, there's troop reinforcements going to, you know, help out moving from A to B. And then it turns out that um, other troops are coming, or, or have just left there. I'm getting this wrong. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is you might have more than one subscription
coming in, like in different time periods. So, and you want to track so the pattern that emerges. If I have three things happen, which is what I'm thinking of it as bingo. You know, I need to have I need to have a report that where X happens, and I need to have another report where Y happens, and it's related to X in a certain way. And then if the third report comes in, it's like, oh, bingo, now I have a problem. So the issue is, can you keep, it's kind of like a history. Partly it's an architectural thing. It's not just a simple question. You'd almost have to be querying the history database to, to ask these questions. So that was kind of a. Are you referring that if at some if one day I find a report about X and then next week a report about Y, then when I query a report about, you know, when I make a, a, a subsequent query on the third week, that I might gain something from having knowledge of my of of, of having done um, similar queries in the past where yeah. I found X and Y. You like so imagine a terrorist scenario. Imagine you, you're looking for three things be happening, and they might happen over a period of time. And, and so when, when bingo happens, that means what you're going to get routed to you as a subscriber is those three documents, which together meet, match your pattern, but anyone individually doesn't match any single subscription. So it's kind of like a composite, I don't know how the best word to use. It's event causality is the term that some people use to uh, describe it. Uh, David Luckham from Stanford University has written several papers on it. Interesting. It's, it's the, uh, the understanding the events individually, but also the causality between them. And some of his examples are phishing. You have an event, somebody All changes right. their password. Then another event is they withdraw the money from their account. If you have oh. a repeated series of these that represent an anomaly, from a statistical standpoint, you could deduce or infer from that that you're under a phishing attack. Right, yes, yes. It's, yeah, it's like patterns. So, yeah. So the question really is, can you, you have to keep, it's kind of like you have to keep a list of partial matches and then wait until the last match comes in. And the, I'm not sure how, partly that's an architectural question rather than a language question. The architectural pattern for, for doing this is, um, th this is actually, your, the presentation this morning is very similar conceptually to when I did in February for this group. Uh -huh. And the idea is that if you have a event come in, um, by querying, by, you know, abstracting it up as you pointed out, like a, a person is right. doing a presentation at a place, you can then query an ontology and find out what other things those are related to mm. and find out a place has an owner, for instance. And then by knowing that, you could see if there's potentially another event that is at the owner of related to the owner of the building. You could uh, infer that those two events may have some sort of dependency or causality implication between them. Right. But it, um, I, I, Dave, I, I do remember your presentation about uh, events and, and causality, and and I understand what you you, you said about refining uh, the occurrence of events, but then. It, it really kind of reduces back to then to the same problem. Um, if we if we have the right concepts and the right relationships, uh, whether they are to represent equals uh, all information like um, you know parthood uh, structural relationships or causal you know causal information, whether it's causality by time or by some some other force, um, and and all of that is. Um, you know, in, in, in some semantic senses, is, is 
allows us to formulate uh, a filter or a pattern easily, then, then life is great. The, the catch is when um, a, a query or a filter comes in that is, in some sense, um, formulated or, or not in a way that um, uh, the database already or the ontology um, supports easily and might require some massaging or perhaps a conversion into a different form of a, of a, of a filter or a query or pattern in order to find uh, to find the answer. Yeah, and there's another aspect of it too which is incredibly important, which is the issue of context. And if you look at how human beings think, and this is just my own opinion, right? I haven't heard anybody else agree with this yet, but <laughs> if, uh, if you just look around the room you're in and you see, for instance, a coffee cup, you, you know, your mind just subconsciously recognizes it, but in this context it's normal so it doesn't do anything with. However, if you were driving your car down the road and you saw the coffee cup approaching your windshield at 60 miles an hour, in that context you're going to react differently to it. Same object, but a totally different uh, meaning implied by it. And, you know, having, having not only the, the problem that you just described solved, but also having this layer of context added in with the event, because the events occur in a specific context. The same event occurring uh, in two different contexts means two different things. Well, in this case, not to quibble over a point, but in, in the case of the meeting room, we didn't actually have a coffee cup approaching at 60 miles an hour. In both cases, you did exactly the same thing. You'd get the heck out of the way. Well, yeah, and uh, in, this, in this case, you know, you, you would look at just uh, at a very granular level as you scan around a room, you see a bunch of objects. Right. And in their context of sitting still, you recognize the objects, but you don't elevate it up your, uh, I guess it would be your cognitive stack in your own brain, right. because there's no reason to. It's just normal right. as far as you're, it's not an anomaly. I've but when something occurs that represents an anomaly, such as the same object, but approaching you on the freeway in your car, then you elevate it up to your cognitive stack. Yeah, but I'm saying even in the meeting room, somebody throws the coffee cup at you, well, of course, because that's that's then also it's just an object. Yeah, but you, you you could still say that you know if you see if you saw the cop in front of the um, light of the projector, then clearly you would do something about the cop because it's going to obstruct you know the the projection of uh, somebody's slides. And if you saw a coffee cup on the side of the highway, on the, you'd say, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why that's there, but it's also not. A or you might not even care, or might even notice it. Yeah. But um, actually, the um, but. Maybe my beyond yes events causality in context. Where I think there's another ingredient which is um, goal orientation. Um, in in system engineering, there's this notion of a goal-oriented requirements engineering, where you know the rationale that describes why do we have a requirement for building a system, and why does it matter, and how we're going to evaluate whether the system actually meets the requirements and to what degree. Instead of uh, describing that in English in the traditional sense, is actually reified in the, in a kind of a logic sense where the requirements turns into a goal. Um, the description of what it means to actually achieve the requirements ends up uh, translated into a criteria. And um, and now, in order to actually um, be able to reason about the requirements compliance in that context. Um, we need um, uh, measurable criteria or evaluation functions to say you know, how good is this solution compared in the grand scheme of things. And in the context of queries here, 
if we just present a query and we don't have any information about the context in which, you know, about why will we care about that query, kind of like in an RMODP sense, the viewpoint or the view why we formulate the query, or um, some you know, information about the purpose of what we want to do with information, like, you know, I'm driving, I want to be safe, or uh, I'm presenting and I want people to see my slides or whatever, and um, and, and really the, the expectation about what we're going to do, you know, ultimately without that, the, the resulting information, then it, it, it almost seems, um, you know, obvious that um, we're having a lot of problems trying to figure out, well, how do we going to query what the ontology database is, and if the query is not directly, um, obviously, um, um, answerable by a given ontology, how would we massage it in order to uh, find the answer? Well, the, U the UK government actually used such a system to find a guy by the name of Al Hassini. And this is a guy who bought 10,000 smoke detectors um, in lots of 50 to 100 each and had them delivered to an actual place. One person got suspicious and alerted it. And by, you know, an implied ontology query, they found out, you know, that location can be, you know, the receiving end of a shipment. Are there any other shipments where that specific instance of address or location is on the reception end? And they found that this guy had, in fact, ordered 10,000 or so smoke detectors. They were taking the uh, radioactive material out to the dirty nuclear bomb in 2001, which wow. planned to blow up in the uh, financial district of London. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Hey, can let me, we've only got, what, two or three minutes, is that right? Supposed to schedule it to end at noon? Mm -hmm. No, uh, actually, more close to, like, 12.30. Oh, we've got a whole other half hour. Oh, that's yes. fine. That's so, okay. But do you want to continue with the slides? Sure, I was going to cut off conversation and come back to it, but um, we don't have to. There's still more on this topic. Or I can just move ahead. Why don't we go to the next um, couple of comments? There's only four or five slides left, so we may end up finishing before 12.30, but that's fine. Next. Slide 51. Uh, so are we on the same slide or the next? The next one is, yeah, the 51 is starts with how is this semantic annotation different? Okay, so I, I guess I might go back to the previous bullet. Okay, DL limitations. Yeah, and then how to cope is the next. Right, okay. Yeah, okay, so, so we have these. We have various limitations, and I mentioned a few that kind of I noticed in that one particular application there, and I'm sure there'll be any number of others, and we had a nice discussion about some of these things. Pat mentioned another interesting example that we hadn't thought of. So what do you do? So one thing is to <laughs> wait for new research results, and apparently Ian is working on some of this and other people, so that's one strategy. Um, and again, I mentioned this earlier, you can just use a different technology. So. We um, we also got Enterprise in here, and we're starting to play around with it. And it might turn out that it, you know, satisfies our requirements, and we might use that instead. Now that has a disadvantage of not being aligned with the standards because it uses kind of a different logic underneath it. So that's an issue. Um, another possibility is to develop, you know, hybrid reasoning systems where you use the DL where you can, and if you can't, maybe you you adapt it or do something else. Next. So the next few slides really are just asking a few questions to generate discussion and then a kind of a summary and conclusion. So really these are just questions, and anyone can, can offer their, their, their views or questions or comments. So 
one question is, you know, people always say, well, what is semantics anyway? And how is a semantic annotation really different from a non-semantic one? And can we actually characterize that in a, in a precise way? Um, so my answer to that is basically, you know, is it is this annotation, you know, written in a formal language with the formal semantics, and can you do inference on it? So that's one view. It doesn't mean it's the only view or the best view. That's the one I'm adopting. So are, are you saying that, um, you know, a semantic annotation is an annotation that has an annotation to a semantics that defines what that annotation is? I'm saying that the language that this annotation is expressed in, okay. that so language itself has a formal semantics. Okay. For example, if it's an OWL or if it's in, you know, XSB or any of these other formal languages, or F-Logic. Okay, that's what I meant. Okay. Um, and secondly, that you can do inference on it. That's kind of like the whole point. You can do automated reasoning. The next question, and we talked about this a little bit, is, you know, where did the annotations come from? So do they need to be created in real time? In other words, in some contexts, like news reports, if particular constant stream of news, you know, reports coming in from some syndication or whatever, then, well, guess what? They're going to have to be done in real time, and, and you won't be able to have a person sitting there manually annotating it. They're coming in too fast. And you're going to have to have some automated method, which probably isn't going to be perfect, but it's probably going to be better than nothing. Um, can they be created fully automatically? Well, an open question. In some limited cases, sure. Now, here's an example of where you can um, get fully automated markup by kind of cheating. Okay, so. And it would be perfect. The example of activity reports would be the perfect example to show how you can cheat and get your semantic annotations automatically done. If you fill out a form online or wherever, um, so right now we do fill out a form, and we just enter information in free text in some you know slots. Um, but if that form was ontology driven, in other words, if each slot corresponded to a class or relationship in a class and it was typed, then by merely filling out the form as a side effect, it's formally semantically annotated. So that's a really simple and simple idea, but I think it's a really powerful one that should be leveraged wherever possible. I mean, imagine if all the forms you ever filled out anywhere, anytime, you know, had an ontology behind it. Every time you filled in your name, it knew what name was. Every time you filled in your, you know, your credit card number or all that. Um, it knew what those things are because there was an ontology behind it where the specification of meaning was clear and agreed amongst, you know, consensually among the community. Yeah, imagine if they all had the same ontology behind them. You may you know, that'd be even more cool, wouldn't it? Um, you may want to look at the Adobe uh, lifecycle forms because we do actually hook up some of that in the background. We actually, I mean, not, not to do a product pitch right now or anything, but... They actually right. have something called XMP. I'm familiar with that in a broad sense. But what, I, what I've understood to be the case from limited discussions I've had is, for the most part, it's just there, and there, and you're free to do something with it if you want to, but it's, it's not actually been used in a very interesting way that I know of. Yeah, uh, Dave, you, uh, you, you mentioned XMP or lifecycle something? Yes. Yeah, so what's Lifecycle? I know what XMP is. Is that just a different name? Or that well, no, Lifecycle is the server brand of products which incorporate a lot of SOA functionality. Uh, it's a component-based architecture, 
platforms. It makes up part of the Intelligent Document Platform, which oh, is Document Services. But we have XMP, which is the extensible, it's the XML metadata uh, right. protocol uh, right. that enables us, it's, a, it's actually a platform, to do these types of things. And you're right, most of people who've implemented haven't taken full advantage of it, right. but there are a few who have. And right. You know what they what they've done with it is very much in alignment with what you said, and that they I would prefer that it's a very very uh, big bang for the buck type of stuff. Oh God, it could be huge, and I'm amazed that nobody's doing it. Well, they, they, there are a few doing it, and it, it is. It's the the people who've done it are just like wowed by it. it. Well, yeah. can you give do can you give me a name or anything that you could publicly say about who's done it and with it, how they've gained value? I'd love, and what's who's the name of the person talking? Uh, Dwayne Nickel from Adobe. Dwayne. Oh, you're from. Yeah, if you want to call after. What's your? Do you, can you give me your phone number over this? Uh, sure, six zero four. Uh huh. Seven three eight. Seven three eight. Uh huh. One zero five one. One zero five one. Okay, well, I might give you a call after. Are you free right after this? Uh, no, I've, I'm pretty much tied up until three. Okay, well, I'll. Um, uh, what's your email? Uh, it's on the uh, the wiki. Oh, it's there. Okay, great. Well, I'll maybe send an email. We can set something up. Thanks. That's great. Okay. Um. So, what's the role of the humans? That's another question. In some cases, like if you have like uh, legal cases, you know, Supreme Court decisions or any kind of legal judgment that where's a formal, you know, description of the arguments, yada yada yada. Now, for historical purposes and for case law, you you may have a strong market, you know, based um, motivation where you would actually be willing to pay for a human being to spend a significant amount of time semantically marking these things up so that later on you could do you know, very effective you know, precision searches and get just exactly the kind of thing you want. Um, and again, the last thing I said was kind of the side effect authoring forms. Okay, next. Slide. Slide 52. Another interesting question that I kind of just stumbled on as I was doing this project was, well, what exactly is the relationship between the semantic annotations and the document itself. Now, what we did was, in effect, our semantic annotations really described the document overall. I'm sorry, our, uh, the second bullet, I'm going slightly out of order. What our, I'll suggest the second bullet first, because that's what we did. Our semantic annotations really did literally represent portions of the document content itself, okay? Um, can represent the document literally, you know, the, the actual content. In our case, you know, Sam is going to AAAI, or he published a paper and the co-author was Sarah. So we would actually literally create that information in the ontology language, and that would be the annotation. Um, or you might, you know, kind of have summary information where you literally represented the summary information. Um, another kind of semantic annotation which is quite different. It kind of describes the document overall independent of the content. This is kind of the, the, the Dublin Core type metadata, author, subject, publisher. And Dublin Core metadata would be semantic metadata in the sense that if the Dublin Core is an ontology in a formal language and there's some interesting inferences that you can do over it, um, then there's a reasonable argument for saying, you know, that's also semantic annotation. But the two are really quite different. Um, so that's something to keep in mind when you're doing this kind of thing. And, and I'm not sure what the relationship between the two might be, which is, this is kind of issues and challenges, open questions um, 
for thinking about and discussing. Second, um, what do the annotations contain exactly? So there's objects. Um, so the, the fact that a given object is mentioned at all might be what the annotation says. So in other words, in the case of activity reports, we can say, you know, the, the conference AAAI was mentioned. So that's not so much summarizing the content of the document, but it's saying something about what's in the document. It's a document that mentions AAAI. Um, that's kind of an indexing thing. Um, relationships. Uh, do you record in the semantic annotation that a given object is in a given relationship with another object? For instance, do you say, you know, um, Laura Bush is married to President George Bush? Um, and how would you get that information? Now, indeed, the automated semantic markup, semantic annotation work that's being done, up until recently, they basically weren't doing any of this kind of thing automatically. It's way, way, way harder than representing objects. So in the IR field, information retrieval, there's something called entity extraction. And you know what? They, they do a pretty good job of, of, of extracting you know, names of countries, cities, people, all kinds of stuff. And if you have an ontology in, in the background that, that your annotation, sorry, your entity extraction engine is using, then it can effectively automatically mark up things, you know, pulling out instances mostly. You know, creating classes and subclasses is a little bit different, and inferring relationships requires a much more sophisticated level of natural language processing. I mean, maybe, I don't know if it's, um, I'm oversimplifying things, but there's one thing that I find a bit you know, bothersome about um, annotations as some kind of uh, a, 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 a tagging that does not carry does not contain that it, that is really weakly defined. You know, if you look at it from a kind of like a, a compiler construction perspective, um, you know, annotating a, um, a a document to say, oh, um, you know, uh, this word is a, uh, a person or whatever, it, you know, amounts to parsing the the text, um, you know, according to the syntactic rules of uh, the domain, like English, um, grammatical rules of what does it mean to construct a well-formed, you know, sentence, and so on, and and so I'd, it's only after having, you know, a at least made sense of um, um, on the on the basis of of, of grammar what um, the the sentence uh, say in not semantically speaking, but from a grammatical point right. of view, that now you could say, all right, I understand that we have nouns and objects and predicates and whatever and so on, and uh, now I could take all nouns that I've identified um, and via you know, uh, reasoning over um, uh, prepositions and, uh, right. and whatnot, you could you know, find out that the same noun like Peter is also um, the same noun that is referred to by an article like uh, he, or, uh, <laughs> yeah, in, in, in the context of English, right? But that's only working with English, if you will, as a kind of uh, domain for which you could have a domain theory that will allow you to really make sense of, um, of, of sentences mm -hmm. defined in that language, right? And, and once that you've identified, say, a set of nouns, for example, now you could go into sumo and say, and, and ask, okay, well, so what Peter, what is Peter? Because uh, I don't know anything about Peter. So it could tell you, well, that's you know, a noun that you can give to a person, and okay, so now it's a person, okay, so. 
um, and, and so in the end kind of construct now um, in some kind of iterative fashion or by uh, a, a, a process of parsimonious um, you know, theory construction, what uh, is the interpretation we can make of uh, the text that we've given based on the least commitments we can make or the least judgments that we can make or the most confident judgments we can make about what is our semantic interpretation or correspondence into another domain theory, like, you know, say, sumo as a separate domain theory. Sumo, you mean the... Sumo, you mean like, uh, you know, the IEEE sumo, uh, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, uh, but, you know, if you had, you know, uh, some you know, information about context like Dwayne was talking about or some information uh, about uh, maybe some purpose or intent or, you know, anything about causality that might help um, uh, filter out some bogus... Um, oh, yeah. um, uh, hypotheses or interpretations versus yeah. the ones that are really important. Sure. And the result of all of that then might be, okay, now I've, I could make an annotation of the entire piece of text, um, not just, you know, a single word in there, because now right. I've actually made sense of that whole piece of text right. in context uh, you know, relative to whatever information I had about context, you know, causality, yada, yada, yada. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think that natural language processing technology, you know, is getting better and better all the time. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that you can probably do some of this already with today's technology. But I'm not tracking that very carefully. So thank you for those comments. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to, and the reason I mentioned this uh, is I wanted to find out if Dave is doing is still around, if, if, if my view of, you know, kind of like, Know, not just annotating individual words or, or items, but annotating perhaps an entire chunk of um, of, of content um, because it forms a, a kind of a unit um, that is essential to make a kind of an, any kind of semantic interpretation of what that unit means is, is consistent with um, what he was talking about with uh, XMP or oh. life cycle or some, something like that. Yes, yes. It, it definitely is, and the, the idea that you have the flexibility to do it at a very granular level, uh, so you can actually, you know, use XMP on specific parts of a larger thing, and as well, you can also assign those types of values to the larger aggregate. I see. This is a very common use case, as a matter of fact. other comments? Okay, next slide. Be on uh, slide 53. Right, so another question is how are these semantic annotations represented? So we did one particular approach. We actually, you know, used the formal ontology all to represent them. Um, you may represent your annotations, you know, in some XML variant that you consider to be semantically useful. Um, or you may generate your own homegrown notations. Now, my personal view is that, you know, unless you have a good reason to do something else, you should just represent them in OWL. And if you can't use OWL, then, you know, use whatever else works and stay as standard as you can. You know, it's just a personal preference. Um, another question, here's, this opens me up a, a, a whole other very, very important issue is that semantic annotations 
are are they all expressed using a single ontology? Because as we all know, <laughs> people publish multiple streams of documents, and each one might come from a different group who has their own ontology. So how would you subscribe to, um, you want to put a subscription, I mentioned this before, right, so just to repeat that. You want to subscribe to, to some piece of information, and four different groups are publishing streams of information, but each has their own ontology. So you want to be able to express your subscription in, a, in your own language and then have some mapping going on in the background so that you can pick up the, the, the documents that are relevant to you. So some mapping and translation has to happen to, to allow for that. So that's an important piece. Next, um, so this is the just kind of a summary here of where we were, what we did in the last hour or so. So the message really is, you know, we know that information filtering is something that we all need, and we're really addressing the question, you know, is semantic filtering better? We talked about the implementation approach, how we need to annotate the documents, and we send off those annotations to the inference engine who checks them against the subscriptions. And in our case, the, that checking amounted to asking whether something is an instance of or a subset of a class. And the subscriptions denote classes, the classes of all things that match what you're interested in for that particular subscription. And we integrated it in with an existing uh, computing infrastructure. We then talked about, if you wanted to use this technology, what would you do? Um, and there's three basic steps. You build the ontology for your domain. You establish a mechanism for creating your semantic annotations. And then you create your filters. And we've done the rest, which is to say, now that you have the filters, we have the engines, you can upload the filters, and then the filtering works for you. We had showed a quick little kind of simulated demo and had a discussion about issues and challenges. So a couple of quick conclusions. Benefits of semantic filtering. A, we're, we're reasoning with and considering concepts, not just keywords. And we all know that some of the problems with keywords. Another benefit is we don't require that specific knowledge of the document structure, which you do require if you're going to be using XPath for your filtering. So this increases the relevance of the information, reduces information overload, and increases um, knowledge exploitation. So by the way, I guess I didn't mention this work. It uh, was a university collaboration with the University of Manchester. Sean um, Beckhoffer and Ian Horrocks worked very closely with us initially to get OILED, in fact, working. And some, some early examples to kind of get us off the right track, onto the right track. The mic? Um, yes. This is Dean again. Uh -huh. um, I'm looking at the slide that says information filtering is good for you. Is semantic filtering better? Uh, you know what? I think I must have jumped ahead. Next slide. Okay. Well, actually, I wanted to ask a question on that. Slide. Oh, okay. You want to go back to that one? Yeah, sure. yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I want to ask a question on the slide that I'm looking at, although I don't think it's the one you're talking to right <laughs> That's now. That's okay. Um, point how to use this technology. Uh, Sub-bullet three is create semantic filters. Right. So I was talking to somebody just the other day about a project that uh, would sort of um, parallel what you're doing here. Uh -huh. And the objection that they raised was for a non-ontology savvy class of users, right. it is unrealistic to expect them to be able to form appropriate classes in OWL that are in, uh, restrictions and intersections and uh, complements and all that kind of That's stuff. That's exactly right. So one suggestion I was making, I was, the person I was talking to said, therefore, they, it, we can't do it this way. And <laughs> supposing you could have a user interface that 
manage to insulate that class of user from the intricacies of the you know, of the owl stuff for creating classes that are basically filters. And I wondered, I, I, I was interrupted a little bit during this talk, so I may have missed a couple of slides oh, in the middle. Sure. Um, did, did you have a solution to that? And if so, um, how did it work? Or did you just use OilEd and expect that your uh, filter author has the sophistication to deal with OilEd? <laughs> yeah, that's a really great question. And we did uh, recognize that exact same thing you said. You can't possibly expect you know, ordinary users to, to... Your voice is fading away, Mike. Sorry. A great question. We thought about the same problem. We agree that you can't expect ordinary users to go and create all classes. So we agree with, we, we actually have, I didn't talk about it today, we have um, done some work uh, on building an automatic, sorry, not automatic, but building a GUI to, to do exactly some of that hiding. Um, but no matter what you do to hide it, um, doing Boolean combinations is no way to make that easy. Um, but you, what you really have to do is, is make at least the, the simple things that you want to click very easy. Now here's an example of the sort of thing you could do. Um, inspired by a talk by, I think, Susan Dumai, who I believe is at Microsoft. She published a paper a year or two ago, something like finding the stuff you want or finding my stuff. And you basically have, you know, filters. And you have a nice little... Um, user interface, and the particular thing you're interested in, you click on dates, and you specify all kinds of things. So there's lots of specialized GUIs that you can create. And so, but here's the research challenge, or the practical challenge. There's a trade-off to be addressed between making a fully customized interface. Now, if you have a specific type of context, like the battlefield management thing, you could almost imagine, you know, building a customized interface that, you know, worked reasonably well for for a large class of people, but it would have to be a completely custom thing. Right, but now I suppose a different group wants to use it. Well, it's really expensive to keep <coughs> creating customized interfaces. Okay? Um, so there's kind of, and, and a completely general interface using, say, something like OilEd or, or Protege is just too much, right? But it's cheap in general. So, you know, we're aware of that trade-off, and it's, it's a research challenge to, to, to address that. But uh, um, this Pat, um, there are uh, controlled English type constructs that probably could help. I think uh, yeah, from from, from what I've looked, uh, can, you know, looked into this a little bit uh, theoretically, the big problem is matching the user's terminology with the terminology in the database and right. your um, in, in your ontology and the. Uh, the I think that the primary um, work of an interface would be to take a user query and interpret it in terms of what's in the ontology and where there's ambiguity to then to um, right. interactively come back and try to resolve the ambiguity. I think it's feasible. Uh, take a little bit of work. So you're thinking maybe take a natural language query? Uh, something that looks like a natural language, you can restrict it. You know, oh, okay. you know, require. So you, could, right. you could require, for example, that they put noun phrases in in brackets or something like that. Uh, yeah, something very true. simple that makes makes the parsing really easy. But this that's in true. contrast to the oil led approach where you do a graphical query. Well, there's also you know concept maps. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. the, the, the people have have uh, taken concept maps and, and, and converted those into owl. But oil led doesn't do graphical. Well, graphical in the sense that you're, you're, you're clicking mouse buttons and you're creating things in your yeah. desktop. 
So it, it, in, as in contrast to natural language, you don't type That's a true. sentence as an oil ed and have them turn That's into true. stuff. That's true. That's exactly right. Yes. So, so yes, yeah, so I think the big problem is matching matching the terminology, and that and, and that's and, and, and disambiguating a query. Yeah. And I think that it's feasible, um, but takes work. <laughs> yeah, sure. So that's an important question. Absolutely. Um, indeed, we devoted a significant amount of effort to doing that, and we haven't um, published anything. Else. Okay. Speaking as a consultant rather than a researcher, what I'm really asking is, has anyone solved the problem so we can uh, do our technology selection and just you know buy versus build it? <laughs> what I'm hearing in this crowd is uh, I heard the word uh, research uh, problem come from Mike's lips, and I heard Pat talk about theoretically and doable. So <laughs> the answer to that question at this point is, is, is currently no. I, uh, I'm not aware of anything. If you find something out, let me know. Okay. If, I can go, if I can go buy something off the shelf, let me know. Yeah, okay. The only thing that I, that I know that comes closer are um, uh, search vendors such as um, Kiliad, who... Uh, they will build. Um, they'll, they'll cluster documents and, and build uh, automatically build a tox taxonomy oh, yeah. of so those like documents. And then, yeah. uh, when you put in a query, if you have a very complex query, you can put a whole paragraph as a query. Right. Well, they'll, then they'll they'll generate a um, you know, do the same type of analysis on that query that you do in your documents and figure yeah. out where in the document space this query fits. And uh, yeah. and that, that's the closest that I know of. Okay, with current yeah. technology. Yeah. Okay. I think there's a ton of there's a tons and tons and tons of useful um, inspiration that one could get. I mean, if one if one wanted to build a customized interface, okay, there's a hundred thousand things out there that you could look at. You could look at the kind of thing that Outlook used for creating your filters for your rules. We just kind of go quick, 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 a set of patterns. You know, there's lots of things you could do, but you want to somehow have the ontology drive it, so you don't have to have everything be manual, and have to, cause, and you don't want to have to be writing code all the time to change every little customization. You really want the person to be able to do something like you do in Protege. Now, Protege has a, um, uh, an editor, an instance entry editor. You can just kind of, there's lots of GUI tools where you can move widgets around from here to there. You know, so you'd want something like that, but where each widget is attached to the ontology instead of just being any old widget. So those are some of the thoughts we've had. Okay, um, we're almost done here. So um, lots of, I guess, so there's two missing links. Back to the next slide, which whose number I'm not sure. 55. Conclusions. Right, so there's two really missing links, and I'm glad... Um, who pointed, I forget who it was, Dean pointed that question out. Yes, we need a good way to get the people to be able to produce filters uh, in a convenient way. And the other missing link is, you know, where to get the semantic annotations from. And we talked a little bit about those issues. Here are some references to some work that we've done. And finally, questions to the audience. I'm actually interested in knowing, you know, what other ideas people can think of you know, maybe Dean has some thoughts on this. How could you apply this technology in a, in a company, in a business context or government to really add value? Um, I, I've got answers to that, but I don't think I'm at liberty to share them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Fair enough. Fair but, enough. For those who can share, uh, Nicholas uh, is running a technical discussion session next Thursday, right, Nicholas? Yes. You want to maybe advertise a little bit? Yeah, um, we, there were a number of um, uh, questions that um, had been uh, popping up in, um, in in these forums, and uh, not enough time to really, um, you know, go into them deeply. 
and they kind of gravitate around um, our all the ontologies and annotating the ontologies for semantic purposes, reasoning over uh, annotated ontologies and whatnot. And um, I've posted uh, some notes um, um, on the mailing list of the Ontologue Forum um, uh, about um, what uh, some possible ways in which uh, the discussion can uh, you know, can go. You're welcome to um, certainly um, go over uh, these notes and um, put your two cents uh, into it. Right. And uh, I'll try to wait um, to kind of um, redefine, you know, um, improve the agenda to to have a, a kind of focused discussion about uh, what um, um, uh, you know how to 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 have a a, a fun technical uh, discussion. And actually, Mike's talk today, I mean, tapes, uh, I mean, it, it, it is a great starter, I mean, on leading on to that further uh, for yeah. discussion next week. So, uh, back to Mike. Now, unfortunately, I'm going to be at the WCC rules workshop next week, so I'll miss that. Right. Yeah, I will, too. Mike, can I, this is Chris. Uh, then, oh, so yeah. Hi, Chris. Uh, can I get in one real quick question here? And uh, uh, Nicholas just made the same distinction. I'm a little uh, unclear uh, on this uh, ontology versus semantic annotation distinction. Um, it can, can you, in, in two minutes, uh, uh, just say very quickly why you make that distinction and what it is, or probably vice I'm versa? Not, I'm, not, okay, I'm not sure what you mean. I'm not aware that I'm making a distinction. Well, uh, I see. Um, I see. Uh, um, uh, well, and Nicholas used the expression annotating semantic ontologies, and I thought you'd actually used uh, uh, the same, the same, uh, made the same sort of distinction. Well, you know, yeah. What what I was um, referring to is um, right now. If you, for example, if you look at uh, the uh, W. Um, uh, I'm kind of like repeating some of the things I described in um, in in the in the uh, discussion topics I've mentioned for sure. for next week. But yes, yes, there's a um, a, there's a web um, a, a semantic web best practices um, okay. area where there's a, a few reports um, uh, of common issues in um, on of ontological representation um, and, and reasoning that have been discussed and digested into some really, uh, you know, uh, nice um, okay. uh, reading materials. And one in particular talks about classes as values, which uh, is a, is a, is a uh, specific uh, technical issue that relates to how do we annotate uh, the fact that, say, Peter is a person, person is a class, Peter is an instance. Yep. So we have to can, use a class as a save that for next week because we have to wrap up in about two minutes. And okay. So, okay. Chris, okay. I want to get Mike. I want to answer Chris's question if I can understand it. Um, the 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 uh, I'm j let me just point you to uh, slide 37. Yeah. Uh, okay. Mike, so where you say create an ontology and then augment publishing with semantic annotations. Well, you create the ontology. Yes. Now you have a vocabulary for expressing the semantic annotations. Okay. I see. I see. Okay. I th I think I have a. I, I can I can get to you offline about this as well. Sure. Uh, but sure. yeah, okay, I, that, that helps. Yeah. Okay, great. So I think we're pretty much done here. Let me just see. Um, what technology is available for creating semantic annotations automatically? Capabilities, limitations, 
trade. Now, this is really designed at a machine learning for the web workshop, so that audience, you know, had more to say on this particular question. Um, so, I'm done as far as I'm concerned. Any other comments, questions? And we got, I guess, just a minute or two. So, uh, before we get uh, this, Pat. Um, um, Mike, are, are you going to be available in the next few minutes? Uh, yeah, we can have a, you can give me a call. Well, okay, actually, I need to go downstairs related. to get lunch. Cause okay, fine. Or like 15 minutes or something, or half an hour? If you call me in 20 minutes, I should be back. Okay, are you still at uh, 3605? Yes, I am. Okay. Great. Great. So, uh, thank you very much, Mike. I mean, this yeah, thanks, has Mike. been an extremely interesting talk, and, uh, and definitely uh, raised a lot of questions, and from the discussion, we can see uh, this great interest to pursue things that uh, that that everybody is interested in. And so, uh, on behalf of the Ontolog Forum, uh, let's thank Mike for spending the morning with us. And uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Great. You're very welcome. And thank you for coming. Thanks, and we look is forward. This, are these talks? Are these talks available? In a uh, repeat the question. Are these talks available um, as recordings? Yes, in about I mean, in a few hours. Okay. Well, maybe you can um, send a message out or something. I also just sent to the Ontolog uh, list a uh, PNG view of the uh, conceptual view of the architecture for some of the stuff you were talking about today. Uh, Adobe, there's a few of us folks at Adobe oh. who are on kind of a advanced, uh, similar to the PhantomWorks team at Boeing. Is this Dwayne? Yes. Ah, okay. Yeah, so we're now, is that, I, don't, I don't normally, I'm embarrassed maybe, should I be? I don't follow the Ontolog mailing list, so I might not get that. <laughs> I, can, I can send it to you uh, directly. That would be uh, great. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Admission. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye, everybody.